With that, I'm excited to uh, announce this morning that we are entering into a new sermon series. We're going to be walking through the book of Genesis. As you guys know, our regular pattern and rhythm here at The Crossing is to walk through books of the Bible. I believe it's the best way for us to really understand what God has, has revealed to us about who he is and how he has designed this world to be and how he has entered into it to, to redeem a people for himself. And so we're going to be walking through the book of Genesis in the coming months. And so uh, this morning, we are just going to have kind of an introduction into this book. And uh, we have uh, our, our brother, Jed Kessner, who's going to come up here. And uh, Jed is just a gifted individual, one who has, who has studied deeply uh, both the Hebrew text and Old Testament narrative. So he is, he is well-equipped to be able to share and speak on uh, just how should we approach this book? How should we approach the book of Genesis? And so um, I, I want to welcome all of us into the study of this book over the coming months so that we can explore and understand how God has created this world, what What's gone wrong and what God is doing to bring us back to himself. So Jed, thank you for speaking to us this morning and uh, it's all yours. All right. All right. So I'm going to have Sam come up and read for us. And before Sam comes up or as he's coming up, I want to ask you a question just to help frame our discussion this morning. My question is, is what will bring you life? Think about that. What will bring us life. So as Sam comes, I'm going to have him read. And because this is an introduction, we're not going to read from one like chunk or one section. We're actually going to read from a bunch of selections throughout Genesis. It's only 10 verses. Don't worry. I'm not going to, we're not going to read that much. Um, We're going to have it on the screen though, uh, because I want you to see some very important things in Genesis. Um, So if you would stand with us as we read, Sam is going to read Uh, Genesis, selections from Genesis. Sam. Uh, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And these are the generations of Jacob. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So Lord, as we come to your text this morning, as we look at Genesis, as we look at the introduction to not only Genesis, but as Genesis stands at the uh, entryway to the Bible, we just pray that we would uh, have hearing ears and seeing eyes to see you, the giver of life. So, Lord, would you just bless our time this morning? And, uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I know that's probably a little bit of an obscure passage or obscure text to read as a selection, but I hope that makes sense as to why we do that. And I'm, I'm really, really excited about doing the introduction uh, to Genesis. And I've actually been thinking about this probably since uh, Aaron first mentioned it back in the spring. So I've probably been thinking about this probably six to nine months. So I'm really excited to uh, share with you some of these things. 
But before we jump into Genesis itself, we, I feel like I have to give an introduction to the introduction, okay? And in order to do that, I brought a map with me. I like climb 14ers, and this is a map, one of the leaflets of uh, the 14ers hike. This is Blanca, Ellingwood, uh, Mount Lin- uh, Lindsay, etc. And there's certain things that this map will tell me, right? And if you're a hiker, you know exactly what I mean. It's going to tell you the steepest routes. It's going to tell you what to avoid. It's going to tell you where to avoid the cliffs, etc. But there's things that this map is not going to tell you, okay? There's things, if you ask geological questions about this map, it's not going to answer those questions, okay? It's not going to answer historical questions either about this area. That's not the point. So as we get into Genesis, we have to remember that there's things that it's trying to do, and there's things that it's not trying to do. And when we confuse those two, we run into all kinds of problems. Because we're asking questions that the authors never intended to answer, or the text never intended to, to address. So the first thing that we have to remember is that it's not history. Okay. Some of you just perked up your ears like, what? Um, it's not a history textbook. We have to remember, I'm not saying it's not historical, I'm saying it's not a history textbook. You have to remember that. The biblical authors did not think about history and linear chronological timelines like we do. So you have to remember, it's not history textbook. As if the main goal of God's revelation is to data dump where it gets you information and once you have information, you're saved. Of course, we know that that's not the case. So it's not history textbook. The other thing we have to be quick to remember is that it's not a scientific textbook. Again, I could say a lot of the same things for science in a scientific textbook that I said about history. They don't think about science in the way that our rational, enlightened Western mind thinks about science and the scientific method and repeatability and observations, all that. That's... That's not the point. And I see so many people running to Genesis to prove creation. I'm like, time out, time out, time out. That's not the intent of the passage. I'm not saying that you can't ask some of those questions about Genesis and the creation account. But you have to remember when you ask those questions, you're out in the rough. You're not on the fairway. You're out on the rough. So you can ask some of those questions and there is a place for that. But that's not the main point. And I'll just say right here that uh, while we're talking about creation itself, there's actually quite a bit of latitude with the, the biblical text as to like the exact mechanism or vehicle that God used to create the world. Okay, God is not, did not sit down and say, this is exactly the means or the mechanism or the vehicle that I used to create the world. Genesis 1 and 2 simply present, God created the world. And he doesn't fill in many of those details as to exactly how he did it. Now, I will be quick to say, because I think many of you are wondering right now, I am a young earth creationist for biblical, philosophical, scientific, and uh, other reasons. But I, I come to that conclusion very roundabout. I don't go to Genesis to, to prove that scientifically, because that's not what God is doing with Genesis. So the third thing that it's not, we're on the via negativa right now, uh, it is not moralism as if Genesis was a book of moral lessons from yesteryear, okay? That is crucial because so many people run to these, insul- these isolated stories and they're like, see, do this like so-and-so and see, do this like so-and-so. 
Now, there is definitely a place for that. Men, if a woman seduces you like Potiphar's wife did to Joseph, you should pull a Joseph and you should flee. You should run away. That's wisdom. That's wise. That's character. But if you preach the Joseph story and that's the point of the passage or the message, like you've missed the point. The point is avoid immorality. That's not the point. There's greater things that God is doing through the communication of Genesis and the Joseph story. There's way bigger things going on than simply avoiding immorality. Although that's definitely, you know, something we should do, obviously. So what is it? It's not a scientific textbook. It's not a history textbook. It's not moralism. But what is it? We have to remember that Genesis is a theological message in which God is revealing himself to man. So it's the, it's the story of how God is going to reveal himself uh, to man and bring about this long kingdom story that starts with creation and ends with the end of the world. But it's not just the genesis or the creation of, or the origins of creation, it's also the origins of Israel and the origins or the genesis of God's redemptive plan for mankind. So it's a long kingdom story in which God is revealing a theological message about himself. But we also have to remember, it's also literature. Okay, it's, it's more than literature, but it's not less than literature. So we have to understand the conventions of the day and the things that they would do and the ways that they would write. And we have to come to learn to appreciate some of those so that we can value the message that is very, written in a very different style than we would write in today's world. So, while we're on that point, we can just say really briefly, uh, the author is Moses, substantially Moses. There's a couple areas where uh, he probably, later editors came back and changed some things and updated some things, and he certainly didn't write about his death in uh, uh, the end of Exodus, I think it is. But just don't get your knickers in a knot over who actually wrote uh, Genesis. Because, again, authorship meant something different to the people in the ancient Near East than it does to us. So a lot of times we impose our categories on the ancient Near East, and that's a technical foul. We can't do that. Okay? So, it's literature. The major structural markers are what Sam actually read this morning. And that's why I wanted him to read it. Because it's, it's, it's kind of an obscure point, but it's an important point. Oftentimes our chapters get, chapter divisions in the English text uh, obscure the fact that these structure markers are throughout the text. And they're, the structural markers are actually the toledots, which is what it is in uh, Hebrew, but it's the genealogies. And that makes sense for most of the story, but when you talk about the, gene, uh, the genealogies or the generations of the heavens and the earth, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? So if you want to say a helpful gloss or a helpful paraphrase of that is, now this is the story of so-and-so, or this is the story of so-and-so, or this is the story of what happened in to so-and-so. So when you read it with that lens, it's, now this is the story of the heavens and the earth. And then from there, God works down, or Moses works down from Genesis, or from the um, heavens and the earth, to Adam, to Noah, and subsequently on down until you get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So that's a, a progressive narrowing of the focus through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, in the book of Genesis. So as we get started in the actual book of Genesis, um, there's going to be a redemptive historical grid that's helpful to remember as both myself and other pastors 
speak, there's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Okay, so those are going to be the the kind of our overarching rubric that we're going to use. And today we're mostly going to focus on creation and fall and then some of uh, redemption as well. But restoration is like the way it all comes about and happens in the end and gets resolved. So let's jump in to to Genesis itself. And I do want to be quick to say, I'm going to be all over Genesis. If you try to follow along in your text, you're probably going to be flipping pages by the time I actually am finished reading. So uh, just take notes if that's what you're doing um, and just listen. And um, most of the time I have it actually printed out in my text so I don't, or in my notes so I don't have to flip back and forth. So we get to the, the creation of the world. And as we've said before, however God accomplished it, God, the point in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is that God created it. God took what was there. God took disorder, disunity, and chaos, if you will, and he created order. He created life. He created the world. And whatever else we want to say about it, we've got to say that it, is, it was very good. It was the way it should have been. It was fully functioning. It was full of life. It was fully operational. It was running smoothly. It wasn't twisted or marred or broken or damaged in any sense. And when we talk about uh, the, the creation of man and woman, you have to understand that there's an idea uh, that there was unity and plurality with these two people. Okay, what does that mean? Well, in short, it means there was perfect harmony between the two of them. Neither of them were looking to take selfishly for themselves advantage over the other person. So both of them were working for the good of each other and of the community. And there was, there was perfect harmony. So keep that in mind as we, as we move forward. But number two, the second thing I want to say about creation is that there was still work to be done. Okay, a lot of people think about the creation in terms of like sitting on a beach, sipping pina coladas, and listening to Jimmy Buffett. Um, now, some of you, that's more purgatory than uh, paradise, but <laughs> nevertheless, it, it's not that there was nothing to do. God had actually given Adam a lot of work to do. Um, the garden was not an absence of work, and the curse was not the introduction of work. Okay, so God had intended for Adam and Eve to be at work. And what were they to do? They were to be being fruitful, multiplying. They were to be being productive. Uh, You could think about multiplying in terms of like cause life to flourish. Uh, Not just numerically, not just, uh, yeah, not just numerically like as in crank out all the babies you can. It's it's metaphorically as well like caused life in this world to flourish, have dominion over this world, harness, conquer, tame, use to your advantage, make better, improve your world type of thing. The third thing I want to say about creation is that God created man and woman in his image. And we have to pause for just a second, ask some questions about what exactly that means, because a lot of people feel that that means that there's aspects of our nature and our soul where we reflect God. And that's certainly the case. That's certainly true. But why is that the case? You have to understand that in the ancient Near East, a conquering king would come to a nation and conquer it. And when he moved on to the next nation to conquer, he would leave a statue behind, an image, if you will, To remind the people, this is my territory. I have conquered you and you belong to me now. I am the ruler here. 
If you think back to, if some of you weren't even around or alive or aware at this time, but if you think back to the Iraqi war where Saddam Hussein's image in 2003 was pulled down, that's a very ancient Near Eastern thing to do. Saddam Hussein had set up his image to remind the people, you belong to me. You work for me. I'm the boss here. So what God is saying when he creates man in his image is that he has put every single one of us as a reflection and as a representative and as an ambassador for him because God owns us and we are his ambassadors here on earth. So in a general sense, all of humanity represents God, or at least that's the way it's supposed to be. So no matter what your beliefs are, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what you're, whether you're male or female, you represent God in this world because you are made in his image. But more specifically, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, one who takes the name of Christ, you are called to be an image bearer on a much higher level. You are called to represent Christ. You even bear Christ's name. So you are called to do things like be, multi- or be fruitful, multiply, multiple, multiply disciples. Go into the, all the world and make disciples. You're called to be Christ-like. You're supposed to be filled with the Spirit and living out the type and doing the types of thing and responding in the types of ways that Christ himself would respond. So do you give grace and forgiveness do you, when people hurt you? Do you show compassion to those around you? Do you show grace to those around you? Do you love your enemies as well as your spouses and your children? Sometimes those are the same, one and the same. But do you love those who are your closest neighbors to you? Your children, your spouses, your literal neighbors. Are you bearing fruit and multiplying disciples for Christ? If you are, then you're bearing Christ's name well. And, of course, all of us could use work to bear Christ's image better. But it's not long. So those three things I want to highlight uh, about the creation, the fact that there's unity and plurality or perfect harmony, there's still work to be done, and there's, we are to exercise dominion in God's image. But all, it's not long before we get to the fall. In fact, it's only two chapters we get through this uh, utopian type of society and it all comes falling apart. Because Satan comes as a serpent to Eve, Adam and Eve, and he wants to lead people away from God. So he twists the truth and claims that, God, that man could be like God. And one of the implications there is that God was withholding something from them. You can choose on your own a new way of life and of living that's apart from God and and God's holding out on you so there's something more to be had than what God um, has given you. So the choice that Adam and Eve had is will they allow God to define for them and choose for them what is right and wrong or will they take for themselves that right to choose what is good and what is evil? Will they seize for themselves the opportunity to define good and evil? And they're faced with the age-old question of who has the right to rule? Is it God or is it self? Are we truly autonomous? Can we make those decisions on our own? Will they trust and obey? Or will they decide, apart from God, what is best for them? And when we 
we look at their choice, we see that obviously it was death. But when they made that choice, that choice represented a move away from the giver of life to their own wisdom and to their own insight, their own choices. Proverbs fourteen twelve tells us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but his ends are the way of death. And I think the, the writer of Proverbs is very in tune with, with the creation account and Genesis because God, the giver of life, is the one who knows how things work best. His ways, God and his ways are the good life, actually. So it's, and it's not just that they function best or work best in the type of like pragmatic sense of like, well, it just functions better and life happens better. It's that to reject the giver of life is to actually choose death. It's not just a neutral thing, take it or leave it. It's life or death. Think about a drug addict. He makes a choice every day to choose his drug, but it's not life for him. It's killing him. But he keeps making those decisions because he's bound, he's he's enslaved to that drug. And that's the kind of thing that God knew And God warned them about and said, in the day that you eat, you will surely die. So we know the story that Adam and Eve decided to choose for themselves what was best. Rather than to trust God, and they took on themselves the right to make those decisions. They took on themselves the right to rule. And that's where the the human condition of wanting to choose what's good for me and looking out for number one came into place being. And the first result that we see is that they were afraid. Why? When they chose for themselves the right to rule, the, the notion of self-interest suddenly came on the scene. What's, what's in it for me? What's best for me? And so they can't trust each other fully anymore because now they have selfish interest. So they at once knew that they were vulnerable and they were exposed to risk. And on top of all the shame and the guilt that they feel for breaking God's, um, God's instructions. But God comes and God says, like, what, Adam, what happened? Adam's like, it's the woman. And God goes to the woman and the woman says, it's the snake. So God goes to the snake and he's like, serpent, you are c- cursed. Woman, now he goes back to the woman. Woman, your childbirth is going to be difficult and there's going to be tensions in your marriage. There's going to be tensions in the, in the relationships with, that I've already, um, I've already created. There's not going to be this perfect harmony that was, it was intended to be. Now notice that God doesn't say that because of the fall, I'm going to create this uh, headship and this, this roles for you to play out. The roles for man and woman were established in creation and they were broken and twisted and complicated through the fall, but they were not established because of the fall. So then God goes back to man and says, man, because you did this, your work is going to be frustrated. There's going to be thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be difficult. You're going to sweat And notice again, it's not work that's the curse, it's the frustration of the work that is the curse. But God still has work for them. But on top of all of that, yes, God curses them. Yes, yes, he he pronounces judgment on man and woman, etc. But there's another kind of death. Because no longer can man and woman reside with God 
the giver of life. So there's a sense in which it's not just a physical death that comes on the world. There's a spiritual death that happens as well. Because they're separated from the very one who knows how life works. And they can't be in fellowship with him. And in fact, their hearts are now broken so they can't really understand him. And this starts the groaning of creation because death enters all things. And we see that in just one more chapter over where Cain kills Abel. So the bottom line is that the next seven to eight chapters are a graphic depiction of what God meant when he said, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. I mean, I, I don't think there's a parent here who wants to experience the death of their child before them, let alone the death of a child by another child. That's awful. That's not life. That's not the way it was supposed to be. And God knew that and tried to warn them against eating the fruit because he knew that that was a living death. So it's a spiraling, the next couple chapters are spiraling out of control when man chooses his own way. But of course we know that the, in the rest of scriptures and in the rest of Genesis and even in this passage where, where God pronounces his judgment, there's the anticipation of a rescue. There's anticipation of a cure. There's an anticipation of one day this serpent crusher will come and he, at high cost to himself, will redeem mankind. So there's this hope that one day the seed of the woman will come and will rescue mankind. But we also see, even in this section, we also see God's immediate provision, immediate, immediately merciful response to man and woman. Because he covers them. He provides for them. Perhaps even in the sense of atonement for their sin. So that's creation, that's fall. And now we move into the rest of the story of Genesis where we, we're moving through all nations for the next couple chapters, but then we, we're going to slow down and, and move into the story of Abraham and his offspring. But we get into the story of all nations, and first of all, we see that Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They can no longer be with Adam and Eve or with uh, God. And then we see Cain and Abel. Cain chose for himself a type of offering that he thought God would would be pleased with. He chose for himself the right to choose what kind of things he would present God. And of course, to God. And God said, did not accept his offering. But not only that, Cain actually saw that it was best in his eyes for uh, Abel to be gone. And so he slaughtered him, is the word in Greek, in the Greek text. It's very graphic. Then we move on to these obscure guys named Lamech, this obscure guy named Lamech, who's only seven generations from Adam. And in 419, we see that Lamech took two wives, not just one, but two wives. So he's choosing for himself what is right in his own eyes. And he, like Cain, was also a murderer. And whether he killed one person or two people, he at least killed a young man, um, somebody who wasn't his equal. And then he boasted about it to his wives. So the situation just gets bad and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse until we get to chapter six. And God's assessment is that everything is wicked and man's intention is just evil. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. That's a really bleak picture of man's heart. That's, and in case we missed it, he repeats it several times in chapter 6. It's a very bleak picture of our heart. So God responds with, okay, this is the case. This is the story. This is how man's heart is. I'm going to respond in destruction and judgment. I'm going to wipe out this earth. So the consequences of man choosing his own way is an utter and complete disaster. It spirals way, way out of control until God says, that's enough, you're done, I'm going to wipe it out. And so he brings the flood in judgment, and it's a total reboot of the earth. It's a total decreation and then recreation. And there's actually a lot of language that echoes the creative account um, but we can talk about that more later. But in the middle of the flood account, we read this, we read this section in, in chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, God remembered Noah. So even in the midst of destruction, literally the midst of destruction, the, the centerpiece of that story is God remembered Noah. So in the middle of destruction and judgment, there's hope for a rescue and there's rescue itself through Noah. And Noah is presented as a type of second Adam who is here to rescue mankind. Rescue mankind the way Adam should have or be the type of person that Adam should have been. Now we get to chapter 8. At the end of the flood narrative... And Noah presents an offering to God. He kills an animal, sacrifices him, and the aroma is pleasing to God. So we read this passage, read this section in chapter 8, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither neither will I strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, these things shall not cease. But notice what he says. At the beginning of the flood, God says man's inclination is only evil. At the end of the flood, what is God's pronouncement on man? It's the same thing. It's that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So in one sense, there's nothing that has changed. Man is still messed up. Man is still broken. Everyone still needs a rescue. Our hearts are broken such that we can't know God like we should. We can't be the proper image bearers that we should be. We can't choose life. We can't choose God like we want because our hearts are still broken. Only this time, God isn't going to move towards judgment. There's God, God is going to move towards rescue and redemption of mankind, even though we're still messed up. At the end of chapter 8, it's painfully clear that man is so messed up that without God's intervention, there is no hope for man. There is no hope for man because man is still messed up. So the question that, we, that is just, we're dying to ask at the, chat, even chapter, at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 is, who will rescue us from this situation? Who will crush the serpent's head? 
Who will rescue and redeem us from the situation that's in? Because it's not anybody that's come up in the story so far. There has not been a rescuer so far. Everybody, even Noah. Noah gets drunk in a garden like Adam. Fails in a garden like Adam, gets drunk. And then he's naked and ashamed, just like Adam. Noah is not our rescuer either, even though there was high hopes or great expectations for this dude, Noah. So then we, then we come to this story of the, the table of nations where God catalogs all the rest of the nations. And I think one of the reasons he does that is to remind us that right, as, right before he jumps into the story of Abraham, like, don't forget, I care about all nations, Okay, and we're going to see that a little bit more in, 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 in general. But we, we see this table of nations where God shows the genealogies of all the nations. And then we jump into this curious story about the Tower of Babel. All right, so these people in Babel have found this new brick technology that's going to allow them to build a tower to the sky. Um, and we need to remember that technology can be good, but it's not necessarily wholly good. And it's not necessarily wholly evil because all of technology is being unleashed within the context of a broken world. So you can use technology for good. You can use technologies for evil. I mean, think of Facebook or in vitro fertilization or, uh, you know, iPhone or, you know, all these different things. There's positives that come out of all of them, but there's also some grave dangers and some ethical challenges that come with technology itself. But in any case, they unleash this technology for the sake of human arrogance, for the sake of lifting up their name, which is ironic because they're already given the name of God. They're already given the image of God. They're meant to reflect God in the world, and they are taking that to themselves. So this technology represents the height of human arrogance and rebellions because they want to do something in isolation or in independence from God instead of carrying out the function that they're created to do. So God humbles them. God gives them different languages so they, they can't talk to each other. They can't communicate well and they're scattered throughout all the nation. And that brings us to the hinge story where God is now going to start working not with all nations in general, but he's going to start narrowing his focus down to Abraham and Abram in um, our story. Now, we, we read the genealogies, and the, the interesting thing about this genealogy in chapter 11, verse 27, is that this genealogy is actually connected to Terah, right? But Terah is going to connect us with a lot of different people in the story. Uh, Haran is going to connect us to Lot, which is going to figure prominently in the next couple stories. Nahor is going to connect us to Rebekah, Isaac's future bride. But the real story is going to be this one guy, Abram. And in contrast to the guys that were trying to make a name for themselves, just the previous chapter, God is going to take this no-name dude, Abram, and say, I'm going to make a name for you. Listen to what God says in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So did you notice in that section why God said he was going to bless him? Did you notice why? Let me read verse 2 again. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that 
you will be a blessing. And this could even be an imperative in the, in the Hebrew. Uh, I, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you must be a blessing. Okay, so Abram is blessed not so that he can hoard everything for himself, not so that he can have the three-car garage with the Maserati and the third. He's not blessed just for the sake of storing up riches for himself. He's meant as an image bearer of God. He's meant to be a blessing to the people in his world, to all nations. And of course, we know that he's going to be blessed. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Christ. But there's another sense in which he is supposed to be as part of the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, Abram is supposed to be a blessing to those in his world. But Houston, we have a problem. Because up until this point, everybody has kids and they have so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And we run into this passage in chapter 11, which says, now Sarai was barren. And in case you didn't get it, she has no child. So it's painfully clear that they have a real problem because up until this point nobody had been barren we don't read of anybody who had not had any children and children represents much more than just like your kids and you love them it's life through death you're you're experiencing death you know you're going to die but there's hope for the future because your children live on because after you so there's with Abram and, and Sarah, there's, there's no hope for a future. There is no future with them because Sarah is barren. So it's the antithesis of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. But nevertheless, Abram believes God and obeys God without any shred of evidence that there's going to be a, a heritage or that there's going to be a seed that comes into being. And that takes us to chapter 15, verse 1, verse 1 through 6, where God takes Abram outside and says, look at the heavens, look at the stars, and I'm going to make your offspring as many as the stars. Verse 5 says, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God takes this mostly unremarkable man who remarkably trusts God without any shred of evidence that God can carry through on his promise and simply believes God. And as such, he becomes the paradigm for blessing from God. Not to say that you will inherit all kinds of blessings from God if you have enough faith, as in the prosperity gospel. That's not what I'm talking about here. But... Abram becomes the paradigm for blessing because he, he believes and has faith and trust in God without any evidence. Um, and he believes God and uh, thus is the paradigm for blessing. Meaning that those who would be blessed in Christ, in God, would be blessed because of faith, not because of what they had done. And remember, at this point, Abram has done nothing religious um, or not very much religious, such as circumcision, etc. So Abram is blessed because he has faith and he's blessed to be a blessing. So Abram himself is presented as a little bit of a, another kind of second Adam, one who points ahead to life through faith. Okay, so at this point, we're going to skip all the way to Joseph. 
I know that's a big jump. We're going to skip all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. And we're going to see that Joseph himself is also another type of savior, if you will. When he's put in power, he actually saves the entire world from this famine. Not just Egypt, but the nations around him. And not just Egypt, but as it turns out, he saves the very ones who betrayed him, the ones who mistreated him and sold him into slavery. And through great cost to himself, through great personal cost, he he redeems and rescues and saves mankind on the earth at that point. But he still recognizes that God's hand is at work in his story. Even though there's many times in Joseph's story where it looked like the end of the line was surely here. And we'd never hear from him again down in this dungeon for, uh, that, where Potiphar kept his uh, political prisoners. But the end of Genesis ends like this. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, as Sam read earlier. For I, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil, which they did. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, for I will provide for you and the little ones. So Joseph was a blessing to all the nations around him, and not just to the nations, but to his own brothers who had sold him into slavery and had uh, betrayed him. So the book of Genesis ends with this future promises not wholly satisfied or not wholly explained. So we're left with the question of like, how is God going to work out this redemption thing? How is God going to bring about the story? How is he going to wrap up this story? Where and when is he going to bring the seed uh, of the woman, the serpent crusher into the story? So as we kind of wrap up this morning, uh, I just want to remind us that we're called to be image bearers. The, the, we're called to bear God's image and to be a blessing to others as we are blessed. But in many senses, we can't. We can't bless others like we should because our hearts are broken with sin and selfish interest. Our thoughts are evil continually. Our hearts are, are still sinful. We're called to multiply and to produce life in so many senses in those around us. We're called to be a blessing, but we can't because our, our, we ourselves, without Christ, we're dead. We're called to choose life in God and not rebel against Him, but we can't because we are sinful and we're separated from God. We've been kicked out of the garden. We can't have fellowship with God. Every inclination of our heart is evil, and we're constantly choosing our own way, just like Adam and Eve and Cain and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of Jacob's sons. We constantly choose our way. So the story of Genesis is filled from virtually the very beginning to the end with failure and sin and selfishness. So the question we're left with at this point is, who is going to set us free from the bondage to the sin? Who is going to redeem us and rescue us from the situation that we're in? How can we get back to the way it should have been? How can we get back to God himself and know God himself? When will the second Adam, the true second Adam, come back and reconnect us with the giver of life? And the short answer is that Jesus is is our reconnection with God, the giver of life. 
Jesus is the one who can reconnect us with the giver of life. Jesus is the one who perfectly lived out the way God intended for it to be lived out. God is the one who perfectly lived as God expected. God was the, Jesus was the one that perfectly understood the way of life because he is the way of life. Jesus lived out the way it was meant to be. Jesus lived in perfect unity with God in heaven. There was perfect harmony, perfect unity and plurality with God in heaven. And yet he came down and, and humbled himself of every advantage and stepped into this broken, messed up world that wasn't his fault. We were the ones that, that sinned. It wasn't Jesus' fault. But he stepped down, humbled himself, and stepped into this broken, marred world that we live in. Jesus perfectly carried out the Father's plan. Jesus perfectly carried out the Father's mission as a perfect image bearer. He rejected the temptations that Satan put in front of him and um, that Adam and Eve should have rejected. Uh, Jesus came and didn't lord it over the people he came, but he came to serve those in this world. He was a true blessing to all the people that he came into contact. And not only did he serve and bless people with his life for the three years while he was alive, he blessed people with his death. He is the perfect epitome of someone who is choosing God's way instead of pursuing himself. He trusted God. He obeyed God, even though it cost him absolutely everything through death on a cross. But he is the serpent crusher. He's the one who conquered sin and death and rose again so that we might rise with him as well. Jesus is the great redeemer. Philippians 2, 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus came to bring us life. Jesus came to reconnect us with the giver of life. Jesus came so that we might experience not just a living death, but a living life and life after death as well. John 10.10, in John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and that they might have it abundantly. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is our serpent crusher. So my question at the very beginning is, what will bring you life? And in one word, the answer is Jesus. Jesus and his ways. Jesus, the serpent crusher, knows how to heal our hearts and reconnect us with the giver of life. Because he's the one that can actually get us back to God. God is life. I hope that's not just an abstract theological principle that you ascribe to. But Jesus, God, is life. He's the giver of life. So God, through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, allows us to be the proper image bearers that we should be. It allow, he allows us to be a blessing to the nations around us as we go and make disciples. And it allows us to know the giver of life, which is God himself. So this morning, I just encourage you, choose life. Choose Jesus. 
God, you are the giver of life and we want to know you. We can only know you through Jesus. So we pray that we would choose life, that we would choose to know Jesus. And I pray that we would not just want this because of some fire insurance so that we might not go to, so we might go to heaven and not hell. Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that you are the giver of life for this life and in the one to come. We praise you, Jesus, for coming and rescuing us. And we thank you in your name. Amen.